go in the back door. It's a really small kitchen. It's tiny. It's like a tiny little box. Gas hob. So you have the stove. Worktop. Counter. Sink. A small fridge. Underneath the draining board was the gas fridge. If more than one person's in there, everyone starts to get a bit flustered. That's the general vibe. This is Kitchens, a podcast series by Lekker about the most important room in the home. I'm Lucy Dearlove. They left out any element of human emotion and uh, emotional intelligence and what people needed from kitchens. This kitchen is not, it's not suitable for me. It doesn't enable me to cook. Kitchens are more clones of each other than living rooms or bedrooms are. Why, Why is that? Episode 6, A Bigger Table. Most producers ask people when they're trying to set up their levels, yeah. what did you have for breakfast? Whoa. <laughs> um, today? Today. Today, yes. Uh, I made some um, egg uh, with butter and really chili flakes with uh, some uh, little bit chili flakes. In early April this year, just as lockdown restrictions began to ease, I took the tube to Hammersmith, got a rapid lateral flow test at a walk-in, and went to eat in a room with other people for the first time in many months. Okay, although that did feel significant for a few reasons, lunch wasn't actually the most important reason for my visit. I'd come to Hammersmith to meet Betul and Joe from West London Welcome. West London Welcome is a community centre above all. That's what we're a community group, so we're all members together. Our members say this is like the first family I've I've encountered. This is Joe, Joanne McInnes, West London Welcome's founder and director, along with her colleague, the deputy director Leila Williams. The community centre is run for and with refugees, asylum seekers migrants and other locals. People go through the food bank in a social distance way and they are seeing the same people every week. So it's just having that get out of the house, you know, um, countering loneliness in the support groups. We do a bit of English conversation, a few English, and we just let people have that, that social time together. But we also, on top of that, we give out clothing, we give out laptops, we give out phones, we um, have an advisory service. We help people to get housing and immigration lawyers and advocate for them with the home office and we do a hot lunch <laughs> we feel like the lunch is like the the glue of the whole thing it's and it's like, delicious yeah so it's the excitement of the day really we're, we're just so reluctant to give up on the lunch food is generally a really important part of the work that west london welcome does and so it felt fitting yeah, that my usual line check, what did you have for breakfast conversation, got way more in-depth than usual. In my dream of Turkish breakfast and some different kind of olive, uh, I like olive too much, and some kind of um, cheese, a uh, different type of cheese, and Turkish tea uh, with Turkish pot, <laughs> you know. <laughs> really strong. Yeah, really, really, really strong. But you you can uh, prepare some uh, little bit water or more water. And some jam. 
my mom and my grandmother always make uh, your own and uh, own a uh, jam uh, from our trees, especially oh, wow. damson trees in Turkey, in Izmir. <laughs> I'm Betul uh, Piade. Um, I'm from uh, Turkey. I have been living uh, here just five months, half and half months. And yeah, I'm an asylum seeker right now. Yeah, I'm 29, and also my real job is psychology <laughs> psychologist. I'm a psychologist. When I first got in touch with West London Welcome, Joe suggested that Batul would be a great person for me to speak to about what I was interested in. I was a psychologist in Turkey for a long time, uh, approximately five, uh, seven years. And then, uh, right now, uh, I'm struggling, uh, with le- um, struggling with learning English qu- quickly. <laughs> but I know, maybe I know just uh, 100 um, words. I can, I can speak with my body language. <laughs> As you can hear in the background, West London Welcome is a busy, joyfully noisy place. When I met Betul and Joe, the centre's home was a church they used once a week, though they've since moved to a dedicated space of their own. It's been a really important part of Betul's life since she arrived here. I'm a voluntary in West London Welcome, and I try to help people, uh, also Joe and Leila. Today, for instance, today, uh, I made uh, some cooking uh, for other people, and uh, I'm barista right now. I'm so excited about that. And Alvia is beyond charity and community for me, really. Uh, they're my family in UK. Yeah, I'm so lucky, I think. When you come somewhere that you have no idea about the place, you probably feel uncomfortable. And also you have to struggle with your unknown things. Uh, but I didn't scare from anything, thanks, thanks to Best London Welcome. In my opinion, I'm stronger. I'm a strong person, really, <clears throat> except sickness. <laughs> I had a sick and felt so bad in my hotel room. In fact, nobody did there, even my mother, <laughs> you know, except Joanne Holly. From what I understand about West London Welcome as an organisation, this is the sort of thing they do a lot of. Visiting someone in their hotel room while they're ill to make sure they have everything they need. They take the idea of their members being a family very seriously, which is particularly important given what people have gone through when West London Welcome first meet them. People come from, oh, I mean, 35 different countries and people are coming for all manner of reasons. It might be gangs, lots of El Salvadorians coming with uh, gang-related violence. Some of it can be domestic. We have a lot of trafficked uh, women. Um, We have um, a lot of people escaping war in Syria and, and Libya and Yemen and Iraqis. So just usually escaping some pretty horrific things and people have a lot of trauma. Betel talked about being ill in her hotel room and that's because that's where she was living when she first arrived in the UK. Not by choice, that was the accommodation that she was housed in. I asked Jo to explain a bit more about why this has been a particular issue over the past year or so. 
When people arrive one way or the other, they're immediately put into hotels. And this is because the asylum accommodation that would normally be provided isn't available because they weren't allowed to evict people. If you're an asylum seeker and you're in an asylum accommodation, which is usually a flat or a hotel in cheaper areas in Britain, then you would um, have to leave as soon as you get a home office decision. So that's like, oh, you've got leave to remain, you can stay. You've got two weeks to leave. If you've got been refused, you have two weeks to leave. You're not given any help to find new accommodation. But what happened when there was a ban on evictions, the home office couldn't force people out of the asylum accommodation. So that meant they had a real shortfall. And so they had you know, uh, understandably good idea at the time is to put people in hotels. Joe did initially think this might be a positive thing. I was delighted. I thought, oh, great, people can have, you know, luxury lifestyle of, you know, use the spa, have the buffet. But actually, they use these hotels just as a vessel and they often put their own new staff in. So there's all these middlemen you know, middle businesses, um, subcontractors all the way down the line. And they subcontract the food. And they there's only one or two hotels where they make the food on premises. This creates a terrible problem because there's no choice. Everything's delivered in a takeaway tub, which is heated with the lid on in the microwave. Whilst we recognize it's very difficult to make food for all different people from different backgrounds and different, you know, food tastes, We do it here, and most people eat everything up, but it was so cheap. Where we've tried to find out how much the actual spend is per meal, we know that the Home Office gives £6 a day per person for three meals. But there are two or three contractors in the middle, so we're wondering how much the spend is. Westland and Welcome have kept a very close eye on this food that people are being served in the hotels, and they've actually played a part in the Home Office committing to better food for people in these situations, with their Twitter threads highlighting the inadequate meals that people have been served in the past. It's also important to note that these rooms that people are have been and are still currently being housed in are very basic. There's no kitchens and no special cooking facilities at all apart from kettles. And people like Betul are stuck there for a really long time. When I arrived at hotel, I waited to move another place like house where I had been living for five and a half months in that little poor room. That's why I bought some cooking equipment, which are mixing bowl grater, spoon, fork and can opener. <laughs> also to make some salad because they didn't give salad really. So I always my own vegetables, cheese, yogurt, olives and oils. <laughs> I waited to move patiently but nothing happened. So I was thinking to make my own food in hotel room. <laughs> Neither I nor anyone at Westland and Welcome can confirm or deny this happening because the hotels very explicitly don't allow it for, they say, safety reasons. But there are reports of people using kettles to cook with, in quite ingenious ways, cooking spaghetti in them, then making carbonara, that sort of thing. Imagine living somewhere indefinitely, and the closest thing you had to a kitchen was one of those little travel kettles that barely fit under the bathroom tap. That's your only means of cooking hot food. And then it might be taken off you, I think I'd be pretty gutted about that. Betul managed some incredibly creative things in her room. 
I also made my own yogurt in the room. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. And dried apple in rope. <laughs> Did you imagine? <laughs> How did you try the apple? <laughs> they gave um, some apple, so much apple, okay. and I don't like I don't like to waste something, and I just I I was um, I was thinking uh, how can I how can I uh, eat them uh, without waste and <laughs> uh, be waste, and my mother <laughs> my mother. Uh, is also good uh, dryer, <laughs> dryer people. <laughs> uh, yes, we can dry something because uh, you know uh, Izmir is really hot, and we have to keep something, some foods, uh, without be waste. Even I gave them to my friends as gift. <laughs> Finally, I felt like in my house with my cooking foods. Yeah, that's, I think that's really important for all people. Thinking about living in a hotel room, there's two things that strike me about specifically eating in this situation. I think it's very hard for someone not to be able to cook the food that they choose to eat and that they like, partly because of comfort, but also it's especially hard for people who have children or who can't eat a wide variety of food for various reasons. There's dignity in having the freedom to choose what to eat and when to eat it and having the means to prepare it yourself. But there's also the aspect of being unable to eat with other people. Socialising through food, whether it's cooking big dinners for other people or eating takeaways together, is hugely important. As a sociologist, Alice Julier, author of the book Eating Together, writes, In its extreme outcomes, commensality, that's the practice of eating together, exists alongside the possibility that people starve if not included in shared meals. In less dire but equally determinant situations, exclusion from shared meals means isolation from important and useful social and cultural resources or capital. Taking part in shared meals is almost impossible in a hotel room. I felt really energised by Bettel's productivity and creativity and connecting with people in any way she can through food, whether that's doing volunteer cooking or barista shifts at West London Welcome, or by drying apples strung around her room to give to friends. Her circumstances living in the hotel made it almost impossible to have this experience of social eating. And she managed it only by pushing back against the limitations of her environment. People need to cook. You know, you can only sit in a hotel room on a bed and eat out of a Tupperware thing for so long, you know. And people have been in there 8, 9, 10, 12 months just in a room and have no money to walk around or look at anything or travel and can't work, can't get benefits. So you're just sitting in a room. We've had people with children just sitting in a room for four months, you know, and, the, and uh, sometimes they don't even have kettles. Uh, and that was a real problem for women who um, were making powdered milk or things, you know. So, and, and then the Home Office is worried about people cooking in the kettles, can you imagine? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so no microwave, you know, health and safety. It's very frustrating. And then imagine children who are always fussy and all of us are catering towards a child that, you know, won't eat this and... 
and children are losing a lot of weight and parents are weeping about not being able to offer children any choice or anything that the child likes to eat. And, and people would be perfectly happy to put up with it for a month or two, but it's been so long. It really seems to be people's number one complaint is not being able to cook the food that they like, that they know their children like, and just having that, you know, we, it doesn't matter what culture you're from. You, you know, I, I cook differently to the next Canadian. You know? <laughs> so everybody just wants that comfort of like making what you like and, you know, having that um, freedom to do so. So, uh, yeah, that's, it's, it's a real grievance for people and just they do feel it's dehumanizing. I think five months or more than, I think more than one month is really hard to live in just a little um, hotel room without kitchen, especially for mom. I know a lot of uh, mothers with uh, one or two children and they are living in hotel room for a long time, really. It's really hard to, exp it's really hard to explain um, to children. Um, they told uh, their um, uh, mother, I just want to eat something. And also, um, I know I know one um, mother uh, who has uh, three um, daughters. They told me I just want to eat dolma. And I went to I went to um, Joe's house and made dolma. And they were really they were so happy. They were so happy. They need kitchen, really. They need they need good quality of food. Uh, yeah. Joe described the hot lunch that West London Welcome do once a week as the glue of the whole thing. Eating together in this way with members, volunteers, visitors, all eating a home cooked meal at tables together, it's so beneficial. Not just from a practical standpoint, but from a social perspective too. In an article for The Conversation called For a Sustainable Future, we need to reconnect with what we're eating and each other. A group of academics from Trinity College Dublin discussed the wide range of benefits of sharing food and identified a number of reasons why eating alone is on the rise. It's partly to do with a growth in insecure and inconsistent working patterns, and also an increasing number of people live alone. The variety of people's social circles is also decreasing. As they put it, all this is capitalised upon by the food industry. Solo dining suits commercial interests across the food system, with the rising giants of the food industry keen to communicate a convenience culture around food. Eat when you want, wherever you are. At the moment in the UK, we've got a real issue around food insecurity, which means that people, rising numbers of people, are struggling to access affordable food. 
an appropriate food in ways that are sort of, yeah, available and accessible. But beyond that, I'd also consider food insecurity to be the capacity to eat together. And that isn't something that's covered under the current definition. But to me, when you consider how fundamental eating together in groups is to social life and the fabric of social life and its maintenance and transformation, when there was a range of people that are excluded from that activity, that is also, as far as I'm concerned, an understanding of food insecurity. And we ought to be broadening that definition of food insecurity. Because when people are food insecure, they really struggle to reciprocate around meals. So again, things like kids' birthday parties, going out for dinner, after work, those sorts of things are, you know, they're, they are um, really challenging for people on low incomes. This is Marsha Smith. Marsha lives in Nottingham and is currently finishing a PhD at Coventry University in sociology and social eating initiatives. Marsha's an academic now, but she's very much come from extremely hands-on roles in social eating and is still heavily involved with various projects. Social eating is a, I probably didn't come up with the term, but it's the term that I use to describe eating practices that happen in the public um, using surplus foods at mealtimes. So surplus social eating initiatives are are public places where anyone can access a cheap and affordable meal that's served at a mealtime and they don't have a fixed menu, they have a dynamic menu that changes according to what surplus deliveries the groups get. And the focus really is on making affordable food available to people in a sort of convenient and easy manner, but with this sort of strong emphasis on social socialising. So like public canteens, I guess, in some ways. Well, there's a range of reasons why social eating has become important. I mean, mean, historically, eating together in groups is really one of the most important activities that humans undertake. And even though it seems really mundane, it's actually because it's so deeply embedded in society, because it's so important. So it's one of the primary ways in which we bond socially and which creates social cohesion. So we all know family meals, community meals, wedding meals. But more broadly, again, you know, people eat together to cement their social bonds. So social eating is really, really important across cultures, across time. It's one of these really sort of potent and persistent practices that underpins much of social life. Marsha mentioned how people on low incomes struggle to reciprocate around food. That's a result of eating together only being possible in lots of common scenarios if certain conditions are met. It happens in restaurants and other commercial eating spaces to an extent, but this relies entirely on you unequivocally being able to afford to pay the prices on the menu. There's usually little space for negotiation on that. And then it also happens in domestic spaces. Birthday parties, family dinners, etc. But there are conditions that have to be met there too. You have to have enough space for people to gather together. This is ultimately an issue that rests on how much space you can afford to buy or to rent. And if you're doing this at home, in lots of homes this isn't physically possible. This comes back to the previously discussed issue of many rented homes not having a living room, and people sometimes not really having full access to their own kitchens. And there's a question of permission here too. You have to be allowed to have people round, as again, in some forms of accommodation you can't do this. And you need to be able to pay for the food that's being cooked and consumed. If you're an asylum seeker, on benefits or on a low income, this might not be possible. People are creative in finding opportunities to gather in large groups to share food. I'm thinking about the communal barbecues in Burgess Park, not far from where I live in South London, and the joyful groups of friends and families you see there grilling food together on warm summer evenings. 
It's like a public back garden for people who don't have any of their own outdoor space. But in a cold country like this, there's limited opportunity to gather outside in this way. And indoor space is even more heavily privatised than outdoor. So community meals produce using surplus which keeps costs down for organisations and which allow pay what you feel, or like West London Welcome are entirely free for their members, provide a space for people who maybe don't have many other opportunities to eat communally. And then also in the current UK society, you've got something called the destructuration of the mealtime, the sort of the diminishment of the significance of the mealtime, which means that more and more people are struggling to schedule eating together. And again, we have a concurrent rise in sort of snacking, fast food, ready meals, convenience foods, um, and all of those things put together. Um, also including social isolation, loads of people feeling socially isolated, especially at the moment, and lots of groups that we don't traditionally associate with being, feeling lonely, like young people. Um, so if you add all of those things in together uh, in the UK society at the moment, you've got a real challenge around people eating together. Um, and that means in lots of ways, people aren't able to contribute to the maintenance and, and the building of social life in the UK. Um, so that's really, you know, social eating is incredibly important uh, for everybody uh, and for a broader society. It feels like every few months there's a news story about how terrible it is that no one eats together at the table as a family anymore. But these reports often gloss over why mealtimes are being destructured, which is very often, as previously mentioned, due to unsociable or awkward working hours, or just down to the sheer amount of time people are having to spend at work, or because their living situations don't allow it. And this misplaced advice relates to a wider point. Over the past couple of years, more than ever, there's been a real gap between what communities are saying they need and what's being provided. A recent example of this was Marcus Rashford's campaign for the government to extend free school meals to school holidays during the middle of the pandemic. The Conservative MP Ben Bradley tweeted Rashford to state that extending free school meals to holidays, quote, passes responsibility for feeding kids away from parents to the state. It increases dependency. Rashford pointed out that the reasons people couldn't afford to feed their kids were out of their control. Jobs cut, wages reduced, zero-hours contracts even more harmful than usual during the pandemic. But this is a commonly heard narrative around discussion of food insecurity, the myth of creating dependence. I think a lot of the public health messaging historically has been really top-down and it's been about trying to educate people to cook with lentils more and to grow their own food on the windowsills and, you know, to budget better. And this is the idea that particularly like poor people, of which disabled people also make up a huge part of that demographic, it's that they need to, they need to do more. And recognising that actually we don't stigmatise people for going to Waitrose and buying ready meals. And that's actually its primary like function. It's one of the biggest things the convenience stores sell nowadays. But we punish people that are on the lower end of that spectrum financially and expect them to just do more and more without recognising that actually a lot of people have got a huge amount to do all the time. And actually what they need is someone to care for them. And this ideology that you create dependency through caring for people is, I just think it must be a sort of 
an effect of public school education where you just get you know that it's beaten out of you and it's it's seen as a pro- it's seen as a problem and again just giving poor people even more things to do seems to me to just be really inhuman without recognizing that actually if you want to change the way that people behave you also have to care for them um, and actually show care and there's nothing wrong with that um, and again it's no wonder that when people are really pressed pressured and stressed that they're going for things like takeaways and it's also this idea that poor people are always in deficit rather than actually there's loads of evidence to show that people are quite able to budget but you can only make a limited amount of money go so far and if you and if you haven't got a lot of money you don't try new things because you can't afford to waste that food if your children don't want to eat it so there's loads of stuff here that's going on that that I think social eating is almost like this this crux point that can address a number of the challenges we're having around sort of industrial levels of food wastage food insecurity in its broadest sense social isolation and the sort of you know the rise of fast foods and convenience foods which we see as problematic to me social eating is this sort of mechanism that can deliver a cascade of benefits across all of those things but also fundamentally it's harnessing the deeper needs for people to eat together in a positive way and recognizing that there's yeah rather than seeing it as people becoming dependent on a a cheap meal recognize it as almost like a loyalty to that social eating space and also pleasure you know people want pleasure around food god you know it's not just this instrumental consumption of calories you know it's this really it should be this really pleasurable activity and and, and instead what we've done inadvertently is for you know too big a sway the rising numbers of people in this country have just made it really bloody stressful I was working uh, in a refugee legal charity and I got made redundant. And so for the summer holiday, because my daughter was small, I was really stressed about getting another job. And my mum said, well, why don't you, if you just got some redundancy money, why don't you just take the summer holiday off? Which was just like, my God, I could actually take six weeks off. Like, I could do that. Like, shit, I could do that. I forgot much money, but I could. So I did that and I did loads of voluntary cooking and I got involved in a number of... uh, sort of voluntary cooking projects. One was called uh, Cafe Snenton in the area that I lived in the east of Nottingham. And someone said, oh, your food's always really good. Why don't you set up a cafe? And I thought, do you know what? Actually, I could have a go at doing that. But the thought of setting up something really big and complicated, especially with no money and a little child, I was like, this, this is not really for me. But I could maybe rent out the local church hall once a week, once or twice a week, and just make some food and then people could come and eat it. Just like, you know, I'd been doing that in the voluntary capacity. So I set up a, a, a little business called The Secret Kitchen. Then obviously coming across lots of kids that were, you know, were hungry through local contacts and through some of my own contacts. I was thinking, God, you know, this is really depressing. I've never, I just thought we wouldn't have hunger in this country again. Um, and especially amongst children. And then just seeing, you know, the changes to the benefit system with austerity, you know, you just saw suddenly this bloody ballooning of people that were obviously really struggling to afford to feed themselves properly. And so I set up another project called Family Cafe, which I ran, I think I think we ran it three evenings a week after school and just did a meal using surplus and it's pay what you feel. And it was brilliant in some ways, it was a disaster in others because we never made any money and people just put like 2p in the thing and then the volunteers would get cross because they'd be cooking all day. But we did start to use surplus from Fair Share and I met a wonderful lady called Simone Connolly who runs Fair Share Midlands. I didn't know food has been chopped away, but I didn't realise at the levels that you could incept. So yeah, we ran Family Cafe for a year and then I set up a project called Super Kitchen, which was basically proliferating that model of using surplus, being open on a limited time, 
and just having a public mealtime, but we made it a cheap paid for service, which enabled some sustainability. And again, we just, I think we brought the network up to quite a few groups. as that's how I get, I, I got involved and I, I left Super Kitchen due to a clash with the governing body, let's say it in a polite way. And I just thought I'm going to try to get into academia and go back to uni. And I'm still involved with the network. I run a regular network meeting during the pandemic. I monitored, I set up and managed like a number of WhatsApp groups, helping to organise the emergency response of community food groups. I'm on a load of steering groups. I'm advisor to National Food Service and Food Hall in Sheffield. So I'm really, really still involved with, you know, the groups and finding out what they're doing. And it's just been a fascinating process for me to move from that really practical delivery to sort of reflecting and understanding in a different way and enriching the body of knowledge that I have, you know, that can really be in service of of advocating for the wonderful work that these groups do. And I love going out and socially eating. I love who doesn't love going out. I'm really missing going out to social eating spaces, especially Secret Kitchen one, which got taken over by this lady called Vicky, who's an absolutely amazing cook along with her mum. And I really, you know, who doesn't want to go out and just sit and eat with other people once, twice a week and have a, a, a £2.50 dinner? The way Marsha talks and writes about social eating makes me feel like everyone could benefit from eating in spaces like this. It's a way to meet people who might live in the same area as you, but lead a life that's very different from yours. I always remember Leslie Barson in a previous Lekker episode recorded with her and Dee Woods at the amazing Granville Community Kitchen, talking about how the community meals on the South Kilburn estate meant that people could meet their neighbours properly. If you meet your neighbour properly and you understand their life a bit better, as soon as they make a bit of noise at home, for example, you don't immediately get angry or even phone the police, but you're more likely to have empathy with them. You might just let them get on with it because you know it's not going to last forever. Or you might talk to them directly. It makes you more tolerant. And it's a positive outcome for everyone. And actually, as a behaviour, as a practice, we are going to need to start eating together in groups again. It's a future food practice for conservation of water, of food, of energy, let alone for social cohesion. We are going to need to start doing that. And what the pandemic revealed is that our food system doesn't respond very well to shocks because it's so fragmented and dispersed in terms of just-in-time production and lots of other stuff. And actually, one of the things that coped really well were social eating spaces because they're horizontally organised, they've already got the DBS check, they've already got the food hygiene, they know how to handle surplus, and they were able to mobilise really quickly and effectively to feed people. And the National Food Service across the UK really showed that. One of the things I kept coming back to while making this series, especially after talking to Marsha, was that it's unsustainable for us to continue living such individualised lives when it comes to our kitchens. Every single household, multiple times a day, heating up the oven, running the microwave, boiling the kettle, simmering and sizzling pots and pans on the stove, opening and closing the fridge, running the blender. All of that fuel, that energy, lots of it being wasted. All of that packaging. All of that food going to waste in individual fridges because you're too tired or too busy or just too disorganised to cook it in time. As Marsha put it, what if a couple of times a week you could just go out after work and have a £2.50 dinner? No washing up, no food prep, no waste. Cooked in bulk to save energy. Wouldn't that seem like a great solution? One of the lines I came up with to describe this series when I was making it was the past, present and potential future of the kitchen. I knew I wanted to talk about how the kitchen's history is very much still interlinked with its present. 
because so many aspects of the kitchen's design are still directly related to innovations over a century old. And that's why this series is centred around people and their personal stories and experiences of the kitchen. But the future? Who knows what that might hold for the kitchen? It feels frightening and overwhelming to consider the future in general sometimes. In that article I mentioned earlier from the conversation about eating together, they acknowledge this. It is sometimes hard to keep positive in the face of social, economic, environmental and political instability, they write. So it is heartening that people are organising in solidarity with others around the most basic of human needs, food. Acting together in this way has been shown to be an empowering way to deal with issues of eco-anxiety. By their very existence, these food-sharing initiatives provide a demonstration effect for others. The National Food Service, which Marsha mentioned, is a network of community food justice projects stretching from Glasgow down to Falmouth. It started in Sheffield in 2018 and is a growing force in building new community eating spaces all over the country. Through the projects they run and support, they provide food for people in need and also share and teach skills, prevent food waste, combat loneliness and promote well-being. As Deborah Sugg-Ryan, writing about them in a recent article for the FT about kitchens, put it, a different kind of kitchen indeed. Over the six episodes of this series, I've talked about history, architecture, politics, gender roles. So much of the material available to research kitchens is understandably rooted in the history of housing and of private domestic lives. But it's clear that when it comes to a sustainable future of the kitchen, we have to think outside of the four walls of the home. is written and produced by me, Lucy Dillard. Thanks to my contributors on this episode, Betul Piade and Joe McInnes at Westland and Welcome, and Marsha Smith. I just want to take a minute to tell you that Westland and Welcome is an incredible place. This interview was actually recorded quite a few months ago, before the crisis in Afghanistan, and the centre is now working to support newly arrived Afghan refugees as well as their existing members. I really urge you to donate to support their work at westlandandwelcome.com. I will link to their local giving link in the show notes. There's a Kitchens print zine produced alongside this series. It features original essays and illustrations about kitchens. You can buy a copy now at lekkerpodcast.com forward slash kitchens. And just a note that this zine will remain available as long as people want to buy it. So if you're listening in the future, it's most likely still available. It was produced alongside the series, as I mentioned. It's kind of intended as a companion and there's lots of crossover with the themes and stories. So if you liked the podcast, I think you'll love the zine too. Kitchens is a six-part series and this is the final episode. I'm so grateful to everyone that's listened. This was a personal project I made in my flat with around half of the interviews recorded remotely in lockdown. 
And it's just been so gratifying to see the thing that's been in my head for so long go out into the world like this. And this is completely wild to me, but the podcast is currently number three on the Apple Podcasts Arts Chart, which I'm absolutely blown away by. If you'd like to help me continue to reach such dizzy heights, please leave a rating and review for the podcast there. I'd be very grateful. And if you enjoyed listening and you would like another series like this in the future, please consider becoming a Lekka patron if you're in the position to do so. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash Lekka podcast. The original theme music was composed for the series by Jeremy Wormsley. I haven't actually talked about how honoured and delighted I am that Jeremy agreed to compose the theme for the series, but I really am. When I first started doing student radio in 2005, Jeremy was the first artist I ever interviewed. I am a real long-time fan of his music, and I'm so honoured that he composed such a beautiful theme for this series. You should hire him, jeremywormsley.com. Research and production assistance over all six episodes of the series came from the brilliant Naja Medi. Naja got in touch with me a few months ago. We were Twitter mutuals. She was looking to get into audio from academia and as well as providing amazing support and assistance to me on this series, she's now got a full-time job in audio, which honestly I think is unbelievably impressive and just and really reflective of how talented she is. And just a general note that I'm really grateful to everyone who gave me their time, energy and knowledge over the 18 months of making this project. So that is all the contributors who you've heard on this series. But I also had research calls with more people that I can mention here. And if you're listening, then I just want you to know how much I appreciate what you had to share about kitchens. I also have to thank Rory Dearlove, who has so far gone uncredited, but has been an amazing unofficial production consultant and has given completely indispensable feedback after listening to rough cuts of pretty much every single episode. And he's done so with great grace and generosity, despite me being extremely rude when he first offered to do so. Thanks also to my group chats and friends for being very supportive. Anyone who listened to me moaning about this project or gave me feedback on a draft or just generally gassed me up about it. Thanks. I really appreciate it. I'm taking a little break. Um, But not actually that big a break. The next thing on the Lekka schedule is a three-part series about food and folklore on the Isle of Man, which is being generously funded by Culture Bannon. I'm making that with the brilliant Manx audio producer Katie Callan, and it'll be out before the end of the year. If you liked the previous episode, Bonnag, then you'll love this. Until then, you can find Lekka on Twitter and Instagram at Lekka Podcast. And please do get in touch if you have anything to say about Kitchens the series or Kitchens in general. I'm genuinely still not sick of talking about Kitchens and I'd love to hear from you. You can do that on social media or contact me via lekkerpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening to Kitchens. I'll be back soon.